hey guys and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast so before I go into this episode this episode can could be and can be a little bit triggering for some people so today's episode is with the amazing Josh Connolly I came across Josh through Pat Dibley's podcast which is just one of those podcasts that I, I listen to on a frequent basis Pat has always been also been on the podcast so if you want to listen to that episode with Pat please feel free to do so but today's episode is with Josh. So Josh is a resilience coach. So he's talk he talks about humanizing your emotions. He's a JP breathwork certified uh, instructor. He his story is quite raw and emotional. So in December 2012, he was contemplating the beginning of seriously planning his own suicide. In December 19, he had just finished delivering his kind of resilience workshop with another global organization. He believed that resilience was the ability to keep going no matter what, to avoid any struggle and show up. That ideal drove him to a place where he kind of felt the best thing to do for his children was to take his own life. So today he has a new idea of what actually resilience is. One that is fluid, that allows him to struggle, allows him to ask for help. And it also allows him to keep his head on his shoulders and deal with the internal struggles and embrace that vulnerability and allows him to be reachable and approachable. So today's episode is quite triggering. It's quite a, a kind of a big mental health episode. So some of the things that we kind of talk about is how his experience with his own kids stopped him from taking his own life. We talk about kind of alcohol never being the problem. It served another purpose for someone. We're not born a people pleaser. Sensitivity is your superpower. We also speak about kind of the message that was on International Men's Day. The message that he put out for that how to start feeling heard in a relationship or otherwise and we also talk about like craving is it's not a vice that's calling you it's part of you it's part of you that's telling you that you don't feel safe in the moment so josh does incredible breath work and seminars and josh has a breath work seminar coming up and i would highly encourage you to do so i would highly encourage you to follow josh highly highly encourage you to check out some of his socials his youtube some of the breathwork exercise that he does and I, I love this episode it was so open and raw and these are the ones that I, I i encourage most people to listen to if anything has triggered you or you feel you need support please do go to, to a mental health professional or reach out to one of those amazing charities that are out there unfortunately at the minute there is a mental health pandemic along with the actual pandemic that's going on so if this episode has triggered you in any way please do go and talk so i hope you guys enjoyed the episode as, as much as i did recording it with josh josh how are we sir yeah very good thanks shane and uh looking forward to it looking forward to chatting so Josh, I came across yourself, I know we're kind of talking a little bit off air through uh, Pat Dibley's podcast, and I've been kind of following you for a while, because there's a lot of elements of your story that um, hits home. So I'm going to let you tell us the story of your whole background, and I just want to put a warning out there that this could trigger a few people, so I just have to put that caveat out there. So Josh, the microphone is yours. <laughs> Good, thanks Shane. Uh yeah, look, for me, I, I guess I always say that my story starts when I was like 25 years old, right? And at that stage of my life, I, I, I'd been for a marriage that had fallen apart and I was drinking um, really heavily, had a terrible problem with alcohol and probably drugs as well. Uh, and I, I I'd found myself in a place where I literally didn't want to be here anymore. And uh I was very fortunate that I had an experience with my children. I'll, I'll probably talk about that a little bit later. Um, but that kind of changed everything for me. And at that stage of my life when I was struggling, I just thought there was something wrong with me, right? I, I looked at my life and I, you know, I always said that 
my life was not too drastically different to anybody else's. So I didn't have any reason to feel the way that I did. And yet I had what was, you know, a severe breakdown in the way that I did. And it was after that that I started to look more closely at my life. And I started to question, you know, what was driving this? Why did I feel life was so heavy? Why did life feel so hard? And despite saying things like, you know, people had it way worse than me. Sometimes you got to get on with it. And I don't really remember my childhood anyway. It didn't take me very long to realize that I was saying those things to protect myself from the truth. And the truth was, is that I grew up with, my dad was an alcoholic. I, I lost him when I was nine years old as a, as, a, as a result of the ways that he drank. And I really struggled with that throughout my whole life. It never really presented as me feeling bad about my dad and then so doing these things. But I don't think it took me very long to have to look into my experiences to realize that lots of what I was struggling with actually made sense when I started to look at the environment I, I grew up in. For example, my anxiety disorder looks a lot less disordered if you look at the disordered environment in which it first existed in, right? So I started to realize that so much of my struggle in my adulthood um, results from my childhood. And not only that, a lot of what I struggle with in my adulthood is actually things that were survival mechanisms when I was younger. I think my depression was the same thing. It was depressed emotions, emotions that I pushed down into my body because uh, they were too painful for me to, to experience or comprehend when I was younger. And so then, you know, I, I sort of know today that when I don't find ways to process and release my emotions, they don't go away, they go down into my body. And um, so, yeah, look, that was... Uh, the experiences that I began to learn about myself. I guess I started drinking when I was about 12 years old, despite saying I never would drink. I always said that I would never drink alcohol. Um, and alcohol changed my life. I, you know, it's one of the things I, I, I think is really important for me to say, like alcohol really, really worked for me. I, I'm not somebody who like, believes that it was all false or that I was convincing myself. You know, I don't think alcohol is bad. I'm not against alcohol. Um, I'm actually thankful to alcohol. I'm thankful I found alcohol um, because it saved my life. It got me through a certain part of my life until it didn't, until it stopped working and started to in and of itself cause me problems. And that led me to where I was when I was 24 years old, desperately trying to, make my way in life. And I guess, you know, when I was 24 years old, I was, I, I stopped drinking on the 14th of May, 2012. And despite saying that my life as a result just got better, that's what I said at the beginning. It didn't like, I, 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 I didn't know what to do with myself without drinking drugs to alter the way that I felt. I planned my suicide when I was nine months sober because I couldn't blame it on drinking drugs now. And all I, that what I was left with was me and everything that I felt. And I couldn't deal with that. And I was very lucky that I went to see my kids for one last time. And because I knew I was gone, the past became irrelevant and the future was non-existent. And for the first time ever in my life, I was present with my kids and, you know, I changed my mind and more importantly than changing my mind, I realized that what was killing me was not addiction, right? Although that, that very nearly did kill me. What was killing me was my inability to be able to comprehend, deal with and process my emotions. 
And when did kind of alcohol stop becoming the, the kind of the coping mechanism? Was there kind of a sudden switch or do you think it was a buildup of kind of like, I need to kind of reduce or stop? Like what was the sudden thing for yourself there? I did everything from the age of like 19. Yeah. I, it was, I need to stop drinking spirits and just drink uh, cider. Cause I didn't drink lager. I drank cider. Uh, then I was like, I need to drink spirits and not drink cider. It's the cider that does it. I need to not drink on, uh, need to make sure that I don't drink every day. And so I wouldn't drink on a Wednesday. And then um, I did all of that. Yeah. Go out later, eat before I go out. I tried everything um, and none of it worked. But to be honest with you, what happened was, is that I realized that I was just as miserable when I was drunk as I was when I wasn't drunk. And it wasn't always like that. And, you know, it's, I think it's easy for people to forget that when I was 14 15 and i was drinking i did not feel as miserable when i was drunk as i did when i wasn't drunk alcohol changed the way i felt and made me feel amazing um and it stopped doing that and i think that's when i got to the point of thinking this isn't working i need it i need another way would you what advice would you give to your younger self if you were to kind of look back and see yourself kind of like i don't know a picture or something like that what advice would you give to your younger self would it be to go through the same thing again you've learned lessons for a reason or would you kind of try and chop and change things? Um, from, a, from, a, from a drinking perspective, what I would say to them is that, you know, do work on, work on yourself as well, right? I wouldn't tell them not to drink because uh, I think that would be a mistake, right? What I would say is, I kind of knew this when I was younger anyway, recognize when it becomes a problem. And if you can't stop doing it when you want to stop, then you've got a problem and you need to do something about it. But I would also tell them that my, my feelings are valid, that my feelings matter, that they make sense. Um, and that the things that I think keep me alone in this world actually don't, they connect me to a hell of a lot of people. So if I could find a way to process and deal with that, um, then do that. That's what I would tell them. But I would caveat that by saying, um, it's not a child's responsibility to comprehend their experiences. A child should have a loving, nurturing adult there from day one, right up until they reach adulthood, helping them to comprehend, um, helping them to process and release their emotions, comprehend them and be able to kind of move through them. So, so yeah, that, that's a caveat in terms of, of what I would say if I could speak to him. There's a powerful sentence in there of your feelings are valid. I think a lot of people don't realize that that there's no difference between Josh's feelings or my feelings. Everyone mm -hmm. has their own feelings. And unfortunately, right now, I think there's going to be a mental health pandemic for our generation, the next generation, the generation after that. How can we kind of potentially protect the next generation or the generation after that from having to go through these things? Or is going through these things just part of being almost a human that we have to have struggles in order to strive if you know what i mean yeah i think struggles are always going to happen struggles will exist um but i do think that the, the levels of stress that children endure is something that um we can work on right because i'm not a big fan of the things that say that you know um the things that happened to me when i was younger made me stronger like I didn't need to be strong. <laughs> I needed to be loved and feel safe. <laughs> yeah. 
So I think that's like a, a, a really important thing. But in terms of how do we create that change, I think adults create the change for children by working on themselves because I think the reason why children rarely have adults in their life that can be with them in their emotions is because there's not many adults that exist that can be themselves in their emotions. We we run away from our emotions. We don't let ourselves feel them. And so if I'm a parent or somebody that interacts with children, if I don't know how to be myself when when I sense and feel sadness, then if a child is feeling sad around me, then guess what? I'm, I'm not going to let them feel it. I'm going to try and get them out of it. I'm going to say, it's okay. You don't have to feel like that. Everything's fine. Stop worrying. You don't have to be sad, right? Um, which is emotional avoidance. And so the way, you know, the way that, the way that you counter that is by learning who you are in your own emotions so you can be with other people. And do you think that's because they haven't been taught how to feel or haven't had the, the kind of the surroundings or the people around them to have allowed them to kind of grow emotionally? Is that, the, is that the reason? Yeah, yeah. I think most adults grew up in an environment where their parents tried to make them feel better if they were struggling, right? If, you, if, they, were, if they didn't feel good, it, was, it wasn't like, let's help you comprehend this. It wasn't, it's okay for, to feel sad. Let's explore why you feel sad. That makes sense. It can sometimes feel difficult to feel sad. I understand your sadness. Let's look at what's happened. It, it makes sense, right? Children don't get that. They get, don't be sad. Everything could be all right come on, don't worry, stop crying. Everything's going to be fine. Which in and of itself is emotional avoidance. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that phrase has come up a few times in the, the brief chat that we've had so far. You, you kind of, one of the things that kind of comes up an awful lot for a lot of people, I know I did this in my kind of like early 20s was a two-term, two two-worded term, which is people-pleasing. And you mentioned in one of your kind of like your reels and your posts was that you were not born a people pleaser. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit more and kind of elaborate what a people pleaser looks like? So I think a lot of people assume that they were born this way, right? That's just the way that I am. I said that for a lot of my life. I think people say that when it comes to people pleasing, I don't believe that to be true. People pleasing, let's look at what it is. People pleasing isn't the same as being nice, although it looks like being nice. I think we can like being nice is part of being a human, right? We, we, we're sort of wired to be nice to each other. Um, but if I'm being nice to sent to, to get a sense of value in myself, if the only way I can feel good about myself is by making other people tell me that I'm good or making other people feel good around me, then that's going to start to come with a certain amount of self abandonment, right? That's going to come for, I'm going to place everybody around these feelings and emotions above my own. And so even if it means I'm going to get hurt or I'm going to have to not get my needs met, at least I'll make sure everybody else's needs get met. Right. So how does that happen? I believe that happens when we're younger um, in simple ways. If when I'm a child, I sense that my mum tenses up, when I'm sad or tell her I'm worried about something, if I sense that she feels uncomfortable in that, when I do that, then I will learn not to do that. I will learn that by feeling a sense of shame whenever I feel worried or whenever I feel sad, shame will help me to stop feeling it when I'm a child. And so I won't feel it. Um, and I'll show my mum I'm okay because I know that when I show my mum I'm okay, she seems to be okay. And then I feel more comfortable. 
And so I learned from a young age that my value is based on how I show up for other people. Now, to a degree, I think that societal factors teach this. We're told from the moment we go to school at five years old that our value in the world will be based on how much effort we put in and how hard we try for the next 10 years, right? I don't believe kids should be told that. I think they should be shown that their value exists because they exist. And in an ideal world, have a parent around them that lets them have all of their emotions and know that they're safe so that they learn it's safe to be me. It's safe to have my full range of emotions and I'm still lovable with them. I don't think most people get that. And how would you alter that to show kids from the age of five in schools? Like what would you kind of bring in or what kind of methods or even a curriculum or something like that would you bring in to kind of help kids like as a father yourself? Like how would you kind of relate that to your kids? It's probably more what I would take away. So I would barely have a curriculum um, until senior school, right? We, we could do a little bit of like reading and writing, but I wouldn't have tests. Why are we testing 10-year-old children to see if they can, see if they're good at maths, right? We might need to do a little bit uh, at, the, at the end of the year. Let's evaluate where they're at because we need to put them in certain categories, but we shouldn't be testing them and putting them under pressure to do well in their SATs. Like, why do we do that to kids? I think what I would do in senior schools, for example, is stop putting them under so much pressure to academically succeed and help teachers have enough space in the school day to be able to be emotionally available for the children. Because we live in a world today where there's a lack of community. And so if your mum and dad can't be emotionally available for you, and that's going to happen for for nearly every child at some point in their life their parents are going to go through stress they might have work stress they might have relationship stress they might have life stress whatever it is but if they can't be available for their kids when the kids go to school the teachers are so under the cosh with the curriculum and the academic stuff and making sure that they get everything in that they're supposed to get in they're not emotionally available for the kids so who is no one and then so the kids will start trying to attach to each other by the way and a child that's trying to attach to another child looks a lot different to a child that's trying to attach to a emotionally available adult. And then what about the Americanized system of everybody gets a trophy for doing something? How does that sit with you? No, it shouldn't happen because um, that's not how life works. Right? Yeah. What we should do is support people to understand that in life you win and lose. And so, but, but, but why does that thing come in of giving everybody a trophy? It's brought in by people that don't like to deal with difficult emotions. And so they feel uncomfortable around these kids when they lose because they're sad and they don't know what to do with them. So let's just give them all trophies, avoid any kind of difficult emotion. And it comes back to the same thing. It's emotional avoidance. And then pushing them into the directions or pushing them when they go into careers or pushing them into colleges like the way American system works with college and sports and like, it's just crazy even at school levels over there, high school yeah. levels and stuff. It, it's um, one of the big things you spoke about or I've spoken about is kind of sensitivity. And mm -hmm. it's an amazing sentiment that you kind of talk about is sensitivity is your superpower and you just need to learn how to use it. Can you kind of expand mm -hmm. on this a little bit more? So I think firstly, when it comes to sensitivity, I think it's the most under talked about thing in the whole emotional mental health conversation. Right. And I think it's probably one of the most important things. And we don't talk about it. We talk about it on like a heightened level. If somebody has like severely 
uh, heightened sensitivity it's talked about um but it's not talked about in terms of like a heightened sensitivity like i have sensitivity you can be sensitive to touch and sound and light uh sense i'm particularly sensitive to sense and light i have to have the screen down on my phone all the time touch there's certain materials that i could never wear like i look at certain materials and it makes my skin crawl um but then being sensitive to emotion so i'm hyper tuned in to the to other people's emotions now i believe that i was born that way but then the environment that i existed in kind of like uh furthered that even more because i was always trying to figure out if my dad was upset or what was going on so that hypervigilance got even worse um but sensitivity is a superpower in that i can be tuned in i can know how to be around certain people i can know when they're struggling and know what they need and how to be there just from a deep intuition the problems arise is that what people with sensitivity because they don't understand their sensitivity they feel everybody's emotions very deeply and then they take responsibility for them and that's exhausting right so you have to have clear boundaries when it comes to your sensitivity um and you have to have an understanding of when you're feeling somebody else's emotions and when you're feeling your own emotions so i you know i might be uh somewhere with you and sense that you're struggling and then start thinking i don't care about anything about myself i'm just going to make sure Shane's all right but actually what i need to do is okay i'm just sensing that he's like that that's not my responsibility i might you know try and support you a little bit with it but i don't want to drop everything about myself and just be hyper fixed into what you're doing so i need to know when to take responsibility and when to have clear boundaries and i think because we don't even talk about it people don't even know where to start with that you mentioned the word boundaries and i think that's kind of like a neg it can be seen as a negative lens but it almost since introducing boundaries it's kind of given me freedom if that makes any mm-hmm. sense why do you think kind of having boundaries has been seen as kind of a negative in society or has been or can be uh, seen as a negative in society i think a lot of people that see boundaries as a negative thing are the ones who want to trample all over people's boundaries right so there's probably <laughs> that conversation to be had um but i actually think you know not having any boundaries at all is actually pretty abusive to the people around you as well right because people need to know where they're at with you right and if they don't then you're going to be getting upset with them when they cross boundaries that you haven't even laid um so i, I guess the word itself can feel quite um what can kind of, it like repelling can't it i'm laying yeah. a boundary a boundary here is like you don't cross that you don't come near me so it can feel quite um quite strong in that sense when actually really it's just about me being clear on what 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 i will and won't allow for people to be within my circle and look i found when i have clear boundaries my circles a lot smaller but it's a lot more comfortable um and safe <laughs> you have the people who around you who you want around you at that time rather than having kind of like i don't know i know for myself of like i had say drinking buddies and then i had my mates from school and then i had other kind of football mates but since kind of like setting my own boundaries of potentially reducing kind of going out or not drinking or whatever you kind of realize that you kind of have the people around you who you wanted around you all the time it's about mm. stopping to look for 
something that's already there and realizing what's centered around you and some person may not have all the traits you're looking for whether it's emotional advice or finance advice or whatever it is but i guarantee if you went through your mate if someone went through their mates right now they'd be able to say right that person's good for that that person's good for that how important has it been for you to have that kind of like inner circle for yourself it's probably the single most important thing that i have in my life today is people and for me it's particularly men because men were lacking in my life you know i didn't know i didn't even know how to be with men emotionally i know how to be like lads 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 around them right but i didn't know how to be there for them hold space for them let them share their emotions with me me share their emotions with them i didn't know how to do that and i think it's the single most important thing for me to be able to make sure that i'm consistently and constantly sharing about the ways that i feel and the ways that the things that i'm struggling with so i can navigate through them um but also as well not for me it's been much more safe to not have this big massive social circle of people that i don't even know if i like because i barely know them but they're just part of this big circle and then i'm like trying to make sure that they're happy and you know they're almost irrelevant to my life you know so that small tight knit circle for me um it's been really important i like i will caveat i'll be saying i have to be careful that i don't go too far the other way and just shut everybody out yeah, yeah. and just have my family and nobody else because there's a part of me that would feel much more comfortable doing that right when actually that's probably going too far the other way um but no that you know i can think of could probably name you four really close people that i would trust um trust with my life yeah amazing and you are speaking about kind of men's mental health you put up a very very simple message for kind of international men's day a little while ago and this kind of hit me pretty hard when you kind of you kind of said it and stuff what can you expand on that kind of sentiment and statement that you kind of made around international men's day and the statement was um if we supported children in healthy emotional expression would have a lot less angry men right so yeah. i said yeah. yeah um i think it's that simple uh, in a lot of cases um i never realized that anger was my way of dealing with difficult emotion i got i always went to anger i thought i had an anger problem i didn't have an anger problem i had a sensitivity struggle i had an overwhelmed struggle when i feel overwhelmed or anxious i go to anger because that's how i deal with it and and it's much safer for a boy in our society to be angry in a lesson than it is for him to cry right you you're much less likely to get ridicule from the people around you if you throw a chair and get yourself kicked out than you do if you burst into tears so 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 society conditions me to be that way when i'm younger it conditions me to be angry to to if i don't have somebody who can help me process and release my emotions and uh a lot of boys don't have it a lot of boys particularly don't have it from a father even if their father is around right because a lot of fathers have grown up in the same environment and so have learned the same things right which is emotional avoidance don't you know don't don't express any difficult emotion keep it all in be a good strong lad which is what i grew up to be and i put that in quote marks because all my life i wanted to be a man right and um none of my attributes or characteristics feed into what people will tell you it is to be a man i'm sensitive get overwhelmed easily my wife is the strong one in the relationship my wife is the one that holds the house together right all of those things that i mean 
that's that's just my truth. Um, but to bring it back to the to your original point, a lot of the work that I do with men is getting them to release motions that they didn't release when they were a kid. It's that simple. And how do you kind of kind of vent your own kind of anger and frustration? Because you obviously like you're human, which is the yeah. big, you still feel it. But how do yeah. you, what, what's your kind of like your outlet now? Well, the first one, when you say, how do you vent it? The first one I would say is sometimes badly. Sometimes I shout when I'm in my car and swear at people driving on the road, right? Like everybody else. Yeah. Right? So I don't think, I think if anybody's got it nailed and it's not doing it, then they're not, you can't be my character, the, my type of personality, passionate and all that. And, and kind of not, not over, you know, uh, overflow sometimes. But what I would say is that I have, I still do team sports. So I still play football, which is really useful. Um, I play for a team. So every Saturday I get to get rid of a bit of aggression in that way. Um, I'm certainly of a different version of myself on the football pitch to what I perhaps am on your podcast. Um, but I'm aware of that as well. And then I have daily routines. So I do a lot of breath work. Breath work for me is a great way of releasing emotion. Very important way for me of releasing my emotions because I see anger as being a reaction to my emotions. So if I can deal with the emotions, then the anger will happen less. So a daily practice, morning and evening, is probably one of the most important things I do on that front. If you were advising someone to kind of where to start with that whole thing, because I think it's becoming a lot more prevalent uh, with the likes of half method and stuff like that. We're kind of like the breathing side of things. I know Pat Tibley does an awful lot of stuff with his men as well and kind of breathing and, and routine and stuff. Where where would you start if you were kind of to start off yourself again? I would go straight in at the deep end and do a big breath work session. So uh, I do similar style of breath work to what, to what Pat does, which is conscious connected breathing. You know, you do this breathing pattern for a certain amount of time and it will bring on or it's very good at bringing on emotional release. So look, my beliefs around breath work is that as it becomes more prevalent, um, which it will, I think it's going to get bigger and bigger. People will start to commercialize it and then tell you that you shouldn't be doing it unless you pay thousands of pounds to do a big course. But all it is, is breathing. So my thing is go on YouTube. There's loads of different things on there. Try them. Uh, lots of people, I know I, I, I regularly do um, online breathwork things. Sometimes I do them free. Sometimes there's a little bit of a cost. I know Pat does a bi-weekly one, I think, on a Thursday, just donation-based, right? So sign up and go and do them. <laughs> That's what I would say um, in terms of breathwork. In terms of implementing a routine in your life, start small. You know, don't, don't think that you're going to go from doing nothing to – having a big hour and a half routine in the morning because I think it's unrealistic. Um, so start small. Can you start with a, you know, there's, you know, Wim Hof Scott, for example, there's a 11 minute video on YouTube of Wim Hof doing his method, three rounds of his breathing method. I think that's a good, that one's a great way to start the morning. Um, so people can just go and try it, you know, yeah, I think it's, I think I think that the advice to kind of throw yourself into the breathing and then start off small with the with setting a routine and take yeah. the box off, saying where do you want to be in potentially two three months and work your way back. It's like when you're saving money, have your goal on the end and work your way back uh, and make it relevant to money because I think it's a driver for a lot an awful lot of people. Yeah. Um, 
One of the big things I think a lot of people do struggle with, and I know I've struggled with this myself, is in relation to kind of the feeling of being hurt and kind of wanting to be hurt, but not or struggling to get the the voice or to get struggle to get the the language out. How do you kind of start to kind of feel being heard to to others or to loved ones or to in a relationship or whatever it may be? One of the things I think you should everybody should do is practice listening themselves, right? Because when you start to listen to people, you realize that it's not it's not a simple case of like shutting up and letting somebody talk, right? Listening's really hard. If you've got a busy mind like I have, when somebody starts talking, I have to be like, listen, listen. The voice in my head is like, listen to them you know, look at them, hear what they're saying, feel what they're saying. So I think a lot of the onus has to be on listeners. I think we 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 do a lot of telling men to talk and like, is anybody there to listen, <laughs> right? So I think one of a lot of the onus is on creating those better listeners, getting people that are better at listening. Um, and I think if you get yourself a good listener, if you get somebody who um, has the ability to hold space properly for you, what you'll find is, is that once you start talking, it's difficult to shut up. So um, I think when people create the right space, uh, the talking gets easier. But again, it is for me, it's practice, right? It's practice. I think, by the way, and I say this a lot, I think voice noting is brilliant for this stuff, right? To, to just voice note to somebody and then it's done. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to look them in the eye. You can do it in the safety of your own home, but you've said it, you've got it out there and somebody's listening to it. Uh, I think that can be a really good way of starting voice noting. I think it's, I, I, I encourage my clients to do it. Like, especially if they're out for a walk, because generally walking is kind of like, it's kind of like a kind of a therapy for myself, just kind of like breaking out of these kind of four walls. And if, if, if clients are kind of out for a walk, so I kind of encourage them. That's when you're, that's where your probably your mind is racing to where you, where it wants to go. And it's yeah. just kind of like going down that metaphorical path um, yeah. and letting the words come out. It may not make any sense, but it's ultimately realistically, it's probably the truth that you're kind of going through at that time. So I, I think that's a great idea of kind of voice noting a little bit more. You talk about kind of craving as well. And craving is not your voice calling you. It's part of you telling that you don't feel safe in this moment. Can you kind of expand on that? Because I think craving is another one of those words like boundaries that is seen as a negative, unfortunately. Um, mm. Can you kind of expand on that statement a little bit more? I think what a lot of people think is that a craving is just born out of like, it, it, it's all to do with the substance or the behavior of which you're craving, I don't think it is. I think a craving is a signal to tell you that you don't feel safe, right? And so when the cravings come up, if you can come back into your body and listen to your body, why am I craving a drink? Why am I craving more social media? Why am I craving sugar? Whatever it is, yeah? I say sugar because I, don't, I haven't drank for 10 years, so food is like my go-to, yeah? Because it's easy. I think I don't feel very... I, if I sit down and watch Netflix and I do a whole tub of ice cream and four big chocolate bars, right? It's not because I forgot about calories in them or, you know, I wasn't thinking it's because in that moment, I don't feel very good and Netflix ain't cutting it. So let me just eat loads of sugar and binge while I'm there. So I don't have to feel the ways that I feel. Now, sometimes that little bit of escape might be exactly what I need in that moment. Right. But if I'm consistently doing that without the awareness of what's going on, then I'm ignoring my body's desperately telling me, you know, when I crave something, my body's telling me this is too much. Stop, stop it. Let's stop it. So in that moment, I might want to stop it, but 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 I've got to find out what it's trying to stop. 
So I've got to listen to it. What am I feeling? Am I, am I anxious? Am I worried? Am I lonely? Am I tired? Am I, am I, am I, am I sad? What is it? Can I feel my body? Where is it happening in my body? Have I got a heaviness in my, on my shoulders? Is there a tightness in my chest? Cause they're two different feelings. Heaviness tends to be sadness, right? Tightness in my chest is more likely worry. So the body's telling us stuff all of the time. We just don't listen to it. We shut it up. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> we don't listen to it. We shut it up with social media, chocolate or behaviors or whatever it is. Or even criticism because we're great at putting yeah. ourselves down rather than like, I think one of the things I kind of talk about with clients is kind of like embracing your inner child. Like you wouldn't talk to your, your kid the way you're talking to yourself right now. And when you kind of say that, it's kind of like a deer in headlight moment to kind of just step back. Yeah. Um, and I think it is important to kind of like kids need to be heard people need to be heard. And I think it's important to be able to, to have that kind of like circle around you, which you've spoken about. You have three or four people that you trust your life with. And may, for someone who may not feel that they have that right now, where, what, what would your, your, your steps or what would you advise those, those people to do? There's ever growing spaces out there, right? There's ever growing. If you're a man, there's growing men's spaces. Um, but there's spaces for all genders that are growing out there. And I think it is about going out and finding them. I think social media gets a hell of a bad rap. And, and, it, and it should, you know, most of it's justified. But there's also a lot of evolving communities out there, you know. And a lot of the things that once upon a time you would, you know, just stayed believing you were the only person on the planet that we're struggling with it doesn't take long online now to go and find a whole other group of people that not only are struggling in the same way but are talking about it yeah uh, with each other and so i you know i i always advocate for that go and find the community for example the, the the sober community that i see online nowadays it didn't exist when i got sober and certainly not in the way that it does now right um and I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing that it does that you can go out and find all these different people that are trying to do it in different ways. Um, and I'll sort of bring you back to something that I said earlier, which is the things that you think keep you alone in this world actually connect you to your your tribe, probably. Uh, so go find them. I do, yeah, I, I remember. I can't remember what podcast I was listening to, but they were kind of saying that there's a tribe for everything, whether it be Japanese anime or medieval stuff or whatever it may be, there's something out there for everyone. And it's, there is a communication, like the, you could be talking to someone over in, I don't know, like I got a message from someone to book a call for uh, coaching in South Korea. They're Irish, but they're in South Korea. It's kind of like, it's mm. mad that how someone miles and miles away can kind of interact now. From doing your workshops and from doing your talks and stuff, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from other people that you've brought into yourself? The biggest lesson that I've learned from other people, I think it's, um, I think it's this listening piece. Because before I started doing this work, I thought I was a, I thought I was a brilliant listener, right? And then I started to realize I'm really, I'm a really bad listener unless I'm trying, and then I'm a really good listener. And that tells me a couple of things. That tells me that listening is a, is an absolute skill that we can all hone in on, right? Um, but it also tells me that there's a lot of people out there that think they're good at listening, but like I was, which is rubbish. I, I was all right at shutting up listening. But, you know, if I'm not careful, I'll talk over the end of people. If, I've, if I start thinking, oh, I know something really good to say here when someone's talking, I'll talk over the end of them. Yeah. And I have to, I have to rope that in. So I'd say the biggest thing that I've learned is that actually 
the listening piece is a big one. But the second one is as well is that being wrong about something is really, really exciting. And I often talk about how I wake up every day with the firm belief and acknowledge that I could be wrong about everything that I've ever believed. And so rather than setting out to try and make myself right all of the time, can I set out to make myself wrong? Because the, some of the best moments that I've had in my sobriety journey, for example, have been born out of the realization that something that I'm doing doesn't work anymore. So, you know, I might be telling everyone, you need to do this to stay sober. If you're not doing this, you're doing it wrong. And then I get to a certain stage in my sobriety and I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's, that's the right way to do it anymore. I'm going to do it this way. And then the most exciting times, because then you're off on a new thing, you know, I, not so long ago. Well, you know, it would have been a few years ago. I'd have said breath work, laying down, breathing in that way. You're an idiot. And what are you doing that for? Like, like it doesn't make sense. Right. But here I am now saying it's probably the best thing that I did. So I think that that believing in change and, and being wrong is a big one. Letting go of the ego. Yeah. 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 Okay. Or, 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 or like it can stroke the ego as well. Right. Because if I try and make myself wrong and I end up not being able to do it, then I'll be like reaffirmed in the idea that I'm right. <laughs> exactly. Or I'll be wrong and I'll get a new idea to, to so, you know, it's win win, really. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think we as humans probably know a lot less than we actually think because at one stage we, we believe the earth was flat and we look at, we look at now, we look at pictures on a daily basis of the earth or whatever it is and, and it's round. So at some stage we believe something, but it's, it's forever changing and there's new things, new spheres. And, and kind of in relation to the last question, uh, Josh, is in relation to kind of like the lockdowns. I, I really hope we're not going into another lockdown, but in relation to what's the biggest lesson that you've learned? about yourself during kind of like this weird time that we're in is probably probably how quickly and easily I can still go back into a triggered state. I think a massive problem that's happening during the lockdown is that a lot of people are kind of triggered by a million and one different things and they don't realize it. And, you know, people are falling out with each other and arguing. And I remember, you know, I've, you know, I have my own beliefs around things that are going on. And if I'm getting angry with somebody because their beliefs are different, then I'm triggered. Something's triggered me. Yeah. And I think it's the world is a trigger minefield at the moment. And it, you know, you have to constantly kind of bring yourself back. Don't allow myself to be in the triggered state. Why am I so angry? Somebody's seeing something differently. Um, so that's probably the biggest lesson is it comes back to what we were just saying is, how 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 little I actually have everything together, you know? And I think I, I heard somebody say it about the sobriety journey that you start your sobriety um, trying to find the answers. Then you reach a stage where you, you have them all and you know everything. And then you go through that and then you realize actually the biggest freedom is when you realize you know absolutely nothing, right? And life's just winging it and you're out there looking for the answers and that's the fun of it, you know? a wing and a part. And I think that that bit kind of makes people a little bit uneasy because I think humans like to control things. And when yeah. we don't have control, we kind of go into like freak out mode and we kind of like try to drive things. But I think a lot of people have realized, I know I definitely have anyway, because I can only speak from my own point of view is 
you realize what's been important for you. You also realize that maybe the direction you were planning to go down wasn't the direction you actually wanted to go down and you've kind of reassessed. And I think it's leaving the ego at the door again of it's okay to reassess and change your mind and go down a different route, which is what you've spoken about brilliantly about kind of the box breathing. But, mm. and I think that's, that's a, that's a, a, an amazing thing. Do you think as a society we're looking to get triggered because we're always on social media. We're always watching the news, whether it be the politicians kind of saying one thing and then two days later changing their minds completely. Are we looking to get triggered or a certain sentence on a post, something about gender, gender thing or sexuality or racism or whatever it may be? Do you think we're looking to get triggered? I think some people are addicted to the stress hormone, right? I, 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 probably some of that in me. So I think I think sometimes people are looking for it. Um, and then I think in other occasions, it's just everywhere at the moment. I, like I, if you look at a dysfunctional family system, I think society is operating very much like a dysfunctional family system at the moment. Um, and I think that's quite triggering for people without them even knowing it, right? I mean, if you grew up in an environment where you had a parent that um, would say one thing and do the other, yeah. would like enforce these really strict black and white rules on you, when they were out, I don't know, drinking every night and not remotely even looking at the same kind of rules as you, then you might be quite triggered in the environment that we live in right now, right? Because that's exactly, I mean, in England, that's certainly what's going on, right? You've got the, they're doing what they want and telling everybody else that they should do this, right? So I think you're naturally going to be able to be triggered. And then when you look at a dysfunctional family system, when there is a parent showing up in that way, you have the children take on different roles. You have the hero child or the golden child. They're the ones who do everything right and say, you know, show everybody else, wow, whatever they're doing must be right because look how well we're doing. So you have people that just, you know, will always conform and be the good people. Then you have the scapegoats, the one whose role within the family is to do things wrong. So nobody has to look at the real issue here. And then everybody says, this is the problem. The problem is the, these children yeah, it's the scapegoat child they're the problem here not let's not look at the real issue i think there's a lot of scapegoaters out there at the moment so i don't think you have to go very far into a dysfunctional family system to realize society is, is operating in quite a dysfunctional manner at the moment yeah when you start talking about dysfunctional family and kind of the politics i know over in the uk the big story over there at the minute is the christmas party yeah. last year um yeah. like politicians do one thing then the, the people, the general population, we had the same thing in the first lockdown. You guys yeah. just have us maybe the third, fourth, whatever. I don't even know what number we're on at this stage. It's hard to keep up. Uh, but Josh, I cannot thank you enough for being so open and honest. I think there's uh, emotional avoidance has definitely hit me. Uh, that sentence will, that will definitely stick with me for uh, for a while. Um, so where can people find out about your amazing work, your courses, and if they want to kind of, fingers crossed, they get to see you in person in, the, in 2022? Uh, so uh joshconnolly.co.uk is my website uh and i'm josh underscore ffw on instagram that's probably where i'm most busy um but all my social links are on my website um i've got my six week i regularly do a six week online program the next one's coming up in in january uh january the 10th so signups available for that at the moment um and if you're in if you're in the uk and in, in england once a month now we're doing a regular men's space in london uh, with breath work and a load of different emotional exploring techniques. Um, that's like I say, once a month in London, the best way to keep up to date with that is to probably follow me online, 
signing up to my mailing list if you really want to keep up to date. Um, so yeah, that's the best way. I'm very sort of busy online, so it's quite easy to keep up with with what I'm doing if you're there. Happy days. I'll put all the links into the, the, the write-up and stuff like that. So if people want to check you out or pop you a DM, I would highly encourage you to kind of reach out to Josh. Very approachable. And uh, thank, Josh, I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on. And uh, please do keep up the amazing work. And most importantly, keep safe and keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. Appreciate it, Shane. Good to be on. Thank you.